Section 3 of The Outline of Science, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Outline of Science, Volume 4, by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 27. Bacteria, Part 3. Paragraph 6. Protoplasm of Bacteria. The structure of the protoplasm of which the bacteria, whether cocci, bacilli, or filaments, consist is extremely difficult to determine on account of their minute size. By analogy with other simple organisms, such as the yeast cell, we should expect to find that each of the segments of a filamentous bacterium and every detached segment, called coccus or bacillus, has the structure of a typical cell, that is to say, has a nucleus or denser central body of a certain definite structure, consisting largely of granules or threads of a readily stained substance called chromatin. In typical cells, the nucleus is surrounded by less dense protoplasm, in which are various granules and vacuoles, or liquid-holding cavities. But it appears from long-continued inquiries into this matter that contrary to what we find in typical cells, the bacteria have not a true nucleus, though many have chromatin granules, and in a few, a deeply placed stain-taking body has been observed. The outer region of the bacterial plastid, or unit, is denser than the deeper part. Granules of chromatin and of other chemical nature, and in one kind, the so-called sulfur bacteria, granules of sulfur, are scattered in the outer substance. The structural units of some of the oscillatorii, allied to the bacteria, are apparently also devoid of a nucleus, though in others, an irregular stainable body, which probably represents the nucleus of a typical cell, is present. The structure of the bacterial plastid throws little, if any, light on the very elaborate chemical processes in which it is the active agent, nor on the growth and the shedding of its locomotive cilia. We have so far summarized what is known as to the form and structure of bacteria, their relations to surrounding physical conditions, and to the chemical nature of the organic infusions in which they flourish, require a brief statement. The chemical problems involved cannot be discussed without dealing with some of the most novel and difficult questions of organic chemistry, which lie far beyond the scope of this chapter. Influence of Moisture Desiccation Bacteria, like all living things, owe their distinction from dead or non-living matter to the presence in them, as a main part of their substance, of peculiar compounds of the elements carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen, with some sulfur and minute quantities of phosphates, lime, and alkalis. These compounds are combined to form a viscid, labile material, which is called protoplasm or cell substance. To be permeated by water, that is, moisture in greater or less quantity, is essential for the active life of protoplasm but it can survive desiccation, in some instances, in a quiescent state described by the term suspended animation, as in the case of the wheel animacules and tardigrades. Thus we find that the bacteria are active, growing, multiplying, and moving, when in damp surroundings or actually submerged, and that although many of the more delicate kinds are killed by drought, others survive desiccation, the formation of hard-shelled resisting spores, or statospores aiding that survival.
Influence of heat and cold. Many kinds of bacteria flourish in seawater at zero degrees centigrade. It has been found that a very low degree of temperature, for example, that of liquid hydrogen, minus 252 degrees centigrade, whilst suspending their activities, leaves them uninjured. On the other hand, most bacteria are killed when the temperature is raised to about 55 degrees centigrade. Some live in hot springs and can flourish at 72 degrees centigrade. All non-spore-producing bacteria are killed almost instantaneously when placed in boiling water, 100 degrees centigrade. But the spores of some of the spore-producing kinds are capable, if old and dry, of resisting exposure to boiling water for three hours. Younger spores in a moist condition are more easily killed. These facts as to resistance to heat have a special importance in reference to the preparation of sterile infusions and jellies, that is, pure and free from germs, to be used in the cultivation and separation of different kinds of bacteria in the laboratory. They are, in fact, the foundation of the science of bacteriology and also of the successful carrying on of the great commercial enterprises of canning fruit, vegetables, fish, and flesh for use as human food. They are and have been of no less critical importance in the examination of the now-discarded belief in spontaneous generation. See above. The great poet-philosopher Goethe knew the facts demonstrated by his contemporary Spallanzani and also had seen the swarming animalcules revealed by the microscope. We find, accordingly, that in a discussion with Faust, Goethe makes Mephistopheles protest in words which are precisely in accordance with modern knowledge of bacteriology. In water, in the earth, in air, in wet, dry, warm, cold, everywhere, germs without number are unfurled, and but for fire and fire alone, there would be nothing in the world that I could truly call my own. The translation is Sir Theodore Martin's. Influence of Light It has now been definitely demonstrated that direct sunlight has a destructive effect on many kinds of bacteria. The violet rays are the most deadly. Water exposed in open reservoirs and shallow lakes and streams to the sunlight is freed to a large extent of such disease-producing bacteria as those causing typhoid, anthrax, or splenic fever, and others which are specially liable to destruction by the sun's rays. It was found by Dewar that a liquid containing the bacteria which cause phosphorescence of butcher's meat and dead fish can be frozen at the temperature of liquid air and kept solid for some months without injury to the bacteria if not exposed to daylight. The bacteria become active and phosphorescent when the liquid containing them was subsequently thawed. No chemical or mechanical agency could injure them when in this hard frozen condition, yet they were not inaccessible when in this state to the destructive action of the violet rays of sunshine. Though frozen solid and unassailable by all other agencies, it was discovered that light rays could penetrate the solid mass and by their vibrations break and destroy the protoplasmic molecules. Influence of Gravity It appears that violent and constant agitation of the liquid in which they are living may be injurious to the life of bacteria, but also sedimentation, that is, the falling of particles through air or water, leads to the freeing of the upper layers of the atmosphere from bacteria, and also to the purification of large sheets of stagnant water, especially when fine mineral sediment, as in Clark's process for softening water, helps to carry down the floating bacteria. 
the air at the top of St. Paul's was found to contain eight organisms per liter, when that of the churchyard contained 70. Not a single microbe was found in 100 liters of air at the top of Mont Blanc. Bacteria do not float long in the air. They are carried with dust by the wind, but where there is little traffic and no wind, as in a quiet room or a meadow in the country, the air is practically free from microbes. On the other hand, they accumulate on all surfaces, especially on human fingers and in liquids. It is usual in examining air for the presence of bacteria to pass measured quantities of air through a flask of sterilized nutrient liquid mixed with warm, not hot, jelly, which is then poured out onto a sterilized plate, covered, and allowed to solidify. Each bacterium present in the air becomes embedded in the jelly and multiplies without changing its position, forming a bead or minute patch of growth. The total number of such patches thus obtained from the measured volume of air can be counted, and the different kinds thus captured can be distinguished. Similarly, the number of bacteria in measured quantities of water can be estimated. For accuracy as to the kinds of bacteria contained in a liquid and their isolation, a matter of the utmost importance to the bacteriologist, the fractional method is preferable to the gelatin plate method. In the fractional method, used by Lord Lister in his study of the bacteriology of milk when he wished to ascertain what different kinds of bacteria are present in normal dairy milk and to separate them from one another for study, the number of bacteria of all kinds present in a cubic millimeter of the liquid under examination is counted by spreading it on a squared glass plate under the microscope. Supposing it is found that there are about 1,000 organisms present in the cubic millimeter, then we dilute that quantity of the liquid with 1,000 cubic millimeters of pure sterilized water and agitate the mixture. Now we have produced a liquid containing one organism to every cubic millimeter of its bulk. If a cubic millimeter be removed by a graduated dipping tube, it will probably contain a single organism. Fifty such measured cubic millimeters may be consequently removed and placed each in a tube of sterilized nourishing or culture fluid. In some, no infection will take place. In a few others, an infection by two or even three kinds. But in a large majority, the experimenter will obtain infection by a single microbe, and therefore a pure culture of that one kind, which he can proceed to study and to cultivate. In the foregoing lines, we have given a rough indication of one of the methods of the bacteriologist. The difficulty of his work consists in the need for perpetual and unsparing care to avoid contamination, and to leave nothing to chance. The Influence of Chemical Agents Apart from the question of nutrition, bacteria are checked in their growth, or actually destroyed, by various substances even when present in small quantities. Certain bacteria cannot flourish in liquids giving even a slightly acid reaction. Others are not so checked. Quicklime, carbolic acid, free chlorine and iodine and various metallic salts and aniline dyes act as antiseptics, as they are termed. They kill bacteria. They do not occur in ordinary, natural circumstances, but are made use of by man for arresting the destructive action of bacteria. A bactericidal substance has recently been found in the lacrimal secretion and other fluids of the human body by Fleming. The presence of free oxygen gas is indispensable for the life and consequent chemical activities of some bacteria, which are therefore called aerobic, or better, aerobiontic. 
On the other hand, another large series of bacteria only flourish in the absence of free oxygen and are called anaerobic or anaerobiontic. The chemical action of the bacteria on the carcasses of dead animals and plants and the organic matters contained in the soil and infusions, pond water, sludge, etc., in which they live, is largely bound up with their dependence on or their independence of free oxygen gas. Paragraph 7. The action of bacteria on their surroundings and especially on organic matter. The historical case of the chemical activity of bacteria is that of their causation of the decomposition of the proteids, complex compounds of the five elements, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and sulfur, which constitute the flesh and softer parts of the bodies of animals and plants. Schwann showed that the putrefaction of decoctions or infusions of these proteids, such as occur naturally in pools or soil, or may be prepared as broths, takes place only in the presence of certain minute organisms, living and multiplying in them, which were called, by him and others, infusoria, but are now distinguished from other kinds of microscopic organisms as the bacteria. Prominent features of this putrefaction are the production of foul-smelling substances and the rapid growth and multiplication of the bacteria. The decomposition affected by the bacteria is a step towards the nutrition of those minute plants and may be compared to the digestion of proteids in the alimentary canal of animals. The bacteria, in order to grow and multiply, must take up into their living protoplasm and assimilate the organic elements, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and sulfur, and build new protoplasm from them. These elements exist in a stable mineral state in the atmosphere as water vapor and the gases oxygen, nitrogen, and carbonic acid gas, CO2. Whilst dissolved in all natural waters are carbonic acid gas, ammonia, NH3, carbonate of ammonia, and sulfates. All living things require the five organic elements as food, but only the green plants are able to take them up in this stable mineral condition and assimilate or build them up to form elaborated compounds, the chief of which are proteids. This special property of green plants is shown experimentally to be dependent on the action of sunlight on the green parts of plants, the green grains or corpuscles of chlorophyll or leaf green being essential agents in the process, and the liberation of free oxygen necessary for the life of protoplasm a part of it. No animals can build up the organic elements from their simplest condition into proteids. Animals are absolutely dependent for the organic elements which they require upon the proteids already formed by other animals on which they prey, or else on the proteids built up as leaves, fruits, and roots by green plants, which also liberate during their life perennial supplies of free oxygen gas. Thus, chlorophyll and sunshine are the indispensable intermediary agents bringing the free or lowly combined stable or mineralized organic elements into the elaborated condition of proteids and protoplasm, whether of plants or of animals, while replenishing the atmosphere with free oxygen. Ferments. The bacteria, like the animals, are totally unable to feed upon carbonic acid and ammonia. It is found that there are some bacteria which can get their carbon and their nitrogen from a compound so little elaborated as that called ammonium tartrate, but most of them, as do animals, attack higher compounds, breaking them down or digesting them by the aid of ferments or enzymes, which are similar in their action to the digestive ferments 
pepsin, trypsin, etc., poured out by the cells lining the digestive cavity of animals. The flesh eaten by an animal is taken into a stomach and surrounded by ferment-producing cells, which cause its chemical breakdown. We cannot here enter into the questions connected with the nature of enzymes and the mode of their action. We must frankly dismiss that inquiry to another chapter, merely stating that the ferments or enzymes are elaborate chemical compounds of the organic elements carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, and act as what chemists call catalysts. The minute bacteria cannot get their undigested food into them, since they have no stomach. But conversely, they get into their food and act upon it by ferments diffused from their living surfaces, breaking it down in various degrees and by various chemical reactions according to the kind of bacterium at work and the exact chemical nature of the food to be digested. One of the results of this digestion, and the most important, is that the food is brought into a soluble condition, and the necessary organic elements, in the form of diffusible compounds less elaborate than proteids, soak into the bacterium and are assimilated by its protoplasm, which grows and reproduces itself. Putrefaction it appears that in the putrefaction of a dead body, or say a piece of meat, there are many kinds of bacteria at work successively. Each is appropriate to a certain step in decomposition and produces its special enzyme or ferment. The first stage is the production by special bacteria of compounds from the proteids of the meat, which are little less elaborate than those proteids. No foul smell accompanies their production. They are called tomains and some act as virulent poisons when swallowed by man. A further breaking down effected by other bacteria, apparently always ready at hand for this work, now leads to the production of foul-smelling compounds, poisonous to most animals, known as indole, scatol, etc., the chemical composition and properties of which have been carefully ascertained. Following upon this grade of decomposition, we find other bacteria entering into action. These produce ammonia, sulfurated hydrogen, and carbonic acid. The proteid is thus brought down to the condition of low, simple, that is, not complex, compounds, chiefly carbonic acid and ammonia. The bacterium causing the ammoniacal decomposition of urine belongs here. Finally, by the action of yet other bacteria, the ammonia is oxidized to form nitrites and these to form nitrates, so that now the organic elements are restored to the stable mineral condition in which alone, be it noted, they can serve as food for the green plants. Circulation of the Organic Elements Thus we see that the bacteria serve an absolutely indispensable service in the general circulation of the organic elements. Were it possible to remove from existence all bacteria, the Earth's surface would be encumbered by the highly elaborated proteids forming the dead bodies of animals and green plants, and the organic elements would be locked up in them. The existing mineral or stable carbonic acid and ammonia would in due time be used up, and none would be available for the food of green plants. Accordingly, no more proteids would be formed and no more oxygen liberated to replace that lost by oxidizing action. The existing proteids would remain undecomposed, though dead, and the chain of life would be broken. The bacteria, by their putrefying activity, perform the unique part of returning the organic elements 
from their elaborated combination as proteids to the simpler stable condition in which green plants can again take hold of them and build them into proteids whilst replenishing the vital atmospheric gas, oxygen, continually diminished by its union with all kinds of oxidizable material. The various bacteria concerned in proteid putrefaction have been to a large extent isolated and their forms and special chemical activities determined, but a great deal is still uncertain, owing to the minute size of the organisms, their intermixture, and interactions. Species of Bacteria We cannot yet conclusively arrange the bacteria into a series of well-defined species and genera, and assign to each species its special activities and life cycle. The bacteriologist has at present to be content with stating that a given chemical change is accompanied by the presence of a longer or shorter or straight or spiral bacterium, a micrococcus, a bacillus, a leptothrix, or a spirillum, which he has isolated in pure culture, and as to which he has determined that it does or does not liquefy gelatin when growing on it, is or is not aerobic, does or does not produce spores, does or does not produce coloring matter, fluorescent or not so, does or does not produce heat or phosphorescence. Further, he notes, with what reagents it can be stained, and how its motile cilia, if it have any, are grouped. For convenience, a name is assigned to the bacterium in each case. The list has become a very large one, comprising, according to authorities of moderate views, more than a thousand species and thirty genera. But at present, no theory is possible as to the origin of these forms and as to whether they all have the persistent character which the species of higher plants and animals possess. Nor is there any suggestion as to the advantage given to each kind or putative species of bacterium by the special and distinctive kind of chemical activity which characterizes it. The survival in the struggle for existence of this or that form or strain cannot at present be accounted for by those distinctive activities. End of section 3